our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Good morning. How are y'all this morning? Yeah, all right. Good, good. Hey, uh, like I said, my name is T. Lusk, and I'm the college young adults pastor here. Uh, and just want to celebrate what God's doing, especially as we think about college uh, and young adults and what's happening at Belmont this morning. What a great opportunity for us to, to be able to start a new campus in Nashville with that vision of reaching Nashville. So we celebrate that. Pray for, um, pray for Nick and them, uh, even as Jeff invited us to a little while ago, um, as that's, that gets off the ground. And pray for those college students as we begin to push in to see what God, how God would use us in, at Belmont and Lipscomb and Vandy and Trevecca, that's all down in that area, that we can really see God do a great thing and his move kind of spread all over the city of Nashville. But don't forget about Nolensville, right? There's some great things happening in Nolensville. They had a high school group for the first time a couple weeks ago. They had like 12, 15 kids in high school that were part of that. Incredible, right? That's, y'all are not celebrating nearly as much as I wanted you to. Yeah, there we go. That's right. That's right. It's a core, it's, I'm forcing you to, but you're going to do it anyway. Thank you. So we celebrate what, what God's doing, not only at this campus, but all across the different spots. And uh, just praise the Lord for what he's doing. This morning, uh, we're going to continue working through this series on prayer. And the question that I have for you, or, or I'm, I'm assuming that you agree with me on this, that there's a difference between having an accident and being accident prone. Right? There's a difference between somebody who has an occasional accident and the person who is accident prone. And actually, this week I did some research, and according to Psychology Today magazine, riveting, uh, there are one in 29 people are accident prone. They're identified as accident prone. That means that in this room, there's about 15 of us who are considered accident prone, right? You don't have to raise your hand. I'm raising a hand for you. I'm representing the the accident prone folks in here, right? And I'm not the the injury accident prone. Like I don't hurt myself and break things. I just knock over things, right? It's just like if I'm going to sit down at a table, you know those big round tables, like the, the folding tables we have all over the place, have you ever sat down at one of those and just slid right underneath it like nobody's, nobody had a problem? I've never done that. Every time I sit, it happened to me Friday night. Every time I've ever sat down at one of those, those tables, somehow I sit right where the leg is. And I knock over everybody's drink. It's an incredible experience. <laughs> it's accident prone, right? We, we have, there, there's people who are accident prone. And, and, and it's, you know, it's one of those things. That, and since Jeff and, and really a lot of the guys are down there, there's good news for accident prone people that with exercise and, and the right practice, you can improve your abilities and not be as accident prone. So this morning, uh, I was going to do some exercises with us. Is that good? Rather than a sermon, we'll just do some exercises to, no, I'm just joking. We're not going to do that. But there, the reality is that, that there's, there's the accident-prone folks, and, and, and we have those, those moments. But there's also the type of accident that most of us will never experience. 
what I like to call, and Bob Ross, the big uh, artist with the, the fro, calls a happy accident. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yes, amen, right? A happy accident. I, I've never experienced one of these, but, but as I did some research this week, I, I was listening to a, to a podcast, and there was, there was a, uh, somebody listed a, a group of happy accidents, one specific one I want to share with you. A, pharma, a pharmacist by the name of John Pemberton was running some lab experiments trying to find a cure for headaches, and he mixed two ingredients, coca leaves and cola nuts, and later on, his assistant added carbonated water and happy accident Coca-Cola. Why can't I have one of those? <laughs> right? But that's not it. Like, the list goes on, right? Posted notes, happy accident. Play-Doh, happy-ish accident. <laughs> X-rays, microwave ovens, super glue, that's good for the accident-prone folks, Teflon, Velcro, penicillin, and the slinky, all happy accidents. As I was thinking about this, and we continue working through this, this series on prayer, I think the reality is that a lot of us treat prayer like a happy accident. That what we do is we kind of haphazardly throw up these words, hoping that something awesome will happen. Like when we get in a pinch, we, we throw some words up, oh God, would you, blah, blah, blah. Crossing our fingers, hoping that God would do something incredible. But as you look at this passage in, in Matthew and in Luke, there's no happy accident when it comes to prayer. Jesus has given us a very clear way to work through this. He's given us this model prayer in Matthew 6 and Luke, a way that we can work through. Jesus understands that prayer is not a happy accident. It's a discipline that is learned. And that when we pray, there's restoration for the broken and transformation for our will. That's what we're going to work through this morning is, is each week we've asked a different question. First week with the purpose of prayer, we asked, why do we pray? The second week we asked, with the passion of prayer, we asked, who do we pray to? Last week, Pastor Jeff worked through the pattern of prayer, and we talked about the Acts prayer method, how we would pray with the adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And, and hopefully some of you guys did that this week. This week, I, I took time to actually write that out on a number of days this week as I was spending time with the Lord. It's an incredible opportunity just to kind of work through it. But this morning, as we work through it today, we're going to talk about the practice of prayer. And the two questions I want to ask for, for us as we work through it is this. Are you praying? Are you praying? The practice of prayer. Are you praying? And secondly, what happens when we pray? Just the, the, the honest question, am I praying? And the reality is I think if we answer honestly, most of us, we know that we should, but we're not. And hopefully by asking the question, thinking through some of the, the ramifications and looking at some of the things that happen when we pray, God would encourage our hearts to begin taking up this practice of praying as a part of what God's called us to. I want to invite you to stand as we just read through the Matthew 6 uh, version of this, Matthew 6 passage that is the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. If you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, there's some in the back of the room. We'd love for you to grab one of those. You can take it home. It'll be our gift to you. The passage will also be on the screen here in just a minute as we read through it. This is God's Word, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. It says this, this then is how you should pray, Jesus speaking, our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much that you've given us the opportunity to come before you. As your word says that we can boldly approach the throne of grace. And it is because of your grace that we have that opportunity. Jesus, because of your life sacrifice on the cross, we can come before the Father. And we know that we can, Jesus. We've heard it. But Father, we pray that you would help us this morning to begin practicing it. Because there's such great promises for us when we step into this practice, when we step into this invitation that you've given us to pray that your kingdom would come. Hallelujah. And that your will would be done. Help us, Father, this morning. Encourage our hearts. Open our eyes and our ears that we would be transformed and encouraged. It's in Christ's name. Amen. So the first question is this, are you praying? Are you praying? And, and so I want to ask this or say this, that practice, prayer is a discipline that is learned and practiced. Prayer is a discipline that is learned and practiced. One of the things that I, I, I kind of get into, I, I really enjoy is reading and studying a little bit about history. Now, don't ask me when World War II started. I can't tell you. I don't like, I don't remember dates and times and all those kind of things. I know it was in the past. Thank you. But I love to read the stories about what happens. And really more, in, uh, I really love the narratives of what happens in stories or in history and, and all of these things that connect in this place and this place. And some of the biblical, the, the history of, 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 of the spread of Christianity and the church out of where Jesus, where Israel and all of that and into Europe. And some of the greatest stories I love, really get into that, and, and I enjoy reading biographies about great men and women of God and, and their faithfulness throughout time and, and the ways that they prayed. And, and one of the things that I've seen as I've read and studied those, those individuals is that one of the markers, one of the great, really important parts of these great moves of God in history and the great people, the great men and women that God has used in history is that one of the foundational things that runs through all of those people is that they prayed. That they made it their work. Their business was prayer. They spent time, diligent effort, intentional moments going before the Father in prayer. And when I think about those guys and I read it, it makes me excited, but it also can be a little overwhelming. Be a little overwhelming because I can honestly tell you that my name and Mother Teresa's name are never going to be mentioned in the same sentence unless I say it. Nobody's ever going to confuse me with some of these great men and women of the faith because, because I'm not in the same category as them. Their prayer lives don't look like my prayer life. Even though I look at it and I'm like, oh, I want that so bad, it gets a little intimidating. And I'm, I'm assuming that you and I have some, have some similar experience in, in that, that we can get a little overwhelmed. But Richard Foster, an author, writes this in his book, Celebration of Disciplines. I love this statement. He says, but when we're tempted to despair, rather than beating ourselves up at our obvious lack, 
We remember that God always meets, always meets us where we are and slowly moves us towards maturity. If you're walking through the, the worship guide or the card that you got that works the outline of the sermon, it's the first couple of lines, that God, Christ always meets us where we are and moves us towards maturity. That Jesus is, is one who, who comes to us and meets us where we are and moves us in, in growth and, and maturity. If you think, man, there's no way I'm like those guys. Listen, the reality is that they were not like that when they started. Even the greatest athletes that we can watch on television, some of the greatest individuals that you can see in, in, in different spots, they were not what they are now when they started. And the reality for us is maybe that's intimidating and we don't have, maybe you don't have a good example, somebody that's walking alongside you right now teaching you, you how to pray. The reality is that Christ always meets us where we are. You don't have to be Mother Teresa for Christ to meet you where you are and begin teaching you and moving you towards maturity in the practice of prayer. And one of the greatest things about this passage, if you look in the Luke passage, that these disciples, these guys that, are, that I'm sure are somewhat needy, have come to Jesus after he, they see him off in a, in a different place praying, in a certain place praying, and, and when he's finished, his disciples come to him and he says, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples to pray. And if you look in verse 2, it says that the very next words that Jesus said is that when you pray, pray like this. Not only does Jesus meet us where we are, but that he is a willing and a gracious teacher. This is God made flesh, Jesus. This is God incarnate. He's come to earth and he's sitting with these disciples. He's got a lot that's going on if you think about it. The second part of the Trinity, everything that is, that is in existence was made by him. It's controlled by him. He holds all things together. And when a couple of knucklehead disciples come and ask him how to pray, he steps in. Like, I get overwhelmed when I come home from work. It's been a busy day, and I just want to sit down in a chair and have nobody bother me. And when one of the, one of the boys asked me to go outside or play Fortnite, which, why would you play Fortnite? My response is usually, nah, dad's too tired. But Jesus, holding the world together, steps in, willing and gracious to teach these disciples how to pray. I don't know if, you, if you're a parent, you, you may have had this experience. I can't be the only one that we packed up our first child, Cooper, after he had an extended, spirit to, extended stay in the hospital. They just needed to keep him around a couple days when he was born because uh, they liked him so much. And we packed up and we're in the parking garage and it seemed like the only thing the hospital was worried about was whether or not the car seat was installed correctly. And I'm driving away thinking, are they really letting us leave here? Like, isn't there a test that I'm supposed to take that like proves my proficiency in being a dad? I don't know that I could pass it today even, but the reality, like, I, I was wondering if this was real. Like, is this real that I'm leaving? And I've also been shocked over the past 11 years as our kids have grown up how they're not pre-wired for certain things. Like, is, shouldn't they come pre-wired to know how to brush their teeth? <laughs> I have to teach them how to do everything. Tying your shoes. Do you remember somebody teaching you how to do that? I don't. 
I've forgotten. I think they should become pre-wired to, to mow the grass and mop and, and make up their beds. But that's not the case. Somebody has to teach them how to do that, and I guess that's my role. And Jesus, willing and ready, steps in. We forget that we just, we need someone to teach us. We need a guide when it comes to prayer, when it comes to walking faithfully with, with Christ. And Jesus is ready to step in. He meets us where we are, and he moves us towards maturity. If you're not practicing prayer, if this is a spot where you're just like, mm, I'm not very good at that, that's fine. That's a great confession, but it's not fine to stay there. Press in because the, the God of all creation presses in and wants to teach you how to spend time with him. Hallelujah. But when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he anticipates that they're going to practice. Jesus, is, Jesus teaching anticipates that we're going to practice, meaning that we're going to put this teaching into practice. Listen to how striking these words are in Matthew chapter 7. Now, if you, if you follow along, Matthew chapter 6 is where we read the passage from. That's in a part of a, of a sermon that Jesus preaches called the Sermon on the Mount. 6 is where he tells them how to, how to pray. 7 is where he's wrapping up the sermon. Now, listen to what he says here. He says, therefore, if anyone hears these words, all the words of his sermon... Here's these words of mine and puts them into practice. He is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because his foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. What an incredible promise and incredible warning for us when we listen to God's words here in this passage. Christ anticipates that you and I are going to put into practice his teachings. And the promises of putting that into practice is that our lives are built on a firm foundation that when the winds blow and the waters rise, that our house is not shaken because it's built on a rock. But plenty of us have, met, have had this catastrophe. We've had life fall apart around us and we wonder why. And it's because we haven't practiced what Christ told us to practice. We haven't put into practice his words. I'll tell you a story about the first half marathon that I ran and it was the only half marathon that I ever ran. Because of a few extenuating circumstances, I got sick and injured a couple weeks before the, uh, maybe, maybe eight weeks before the race. I didn't do all the training that I was supposed to do. But race day came and I was like, I can handle this. I'd run about an eight mile run before all of it was, and I was like, that's probably enough. So I start out, I'm doing, I'm feeling good. I probably at this point have not run in about five weeks and I'm just going for it. <laughs> and I'm good for about eight miles. And then it happened. I didn't get a cramp, I was a cramp. <laughs> Whole body. So it's like, I, I mean, every move hurts. I mean, I'm taking every water, every snack that they can give me along the side and it takes four Ever. 
But I, I'm almost there. I'm in the point two. I turn the corner and there's the finish line. And as I turn to, to the finish line, these cheers begin to happen from the stands that are around it. I was like, oh, maybe I don't look near as bad. Maybe I am athletic. Maybe the cramps aren't coming out all over and where everybody can see it. And then from behind me, this person begins trotting past me. And the same day that the half marathon was happening, right before it started, was a full marathon. And the female finisher of the full marathon passed me in the point too. If I had it over again, I'd trip her. I'm not lying. Because if she crossed the finish line, that's why everybody was cheering. They wrapped her in those cute little blankets, you know, like the little silver ones that shine. She didn't need it. She wasn't even breathing hard. I fell across the line just begging for a banana so that maybe these cramps would go away. Nobody even knew I existed. The reality is I had the right plan. I had all the right gear. I had a great mindset. I even bought the stuff that helped you not chafe. But none of that mattered. Because I didn't put the work in. I didn't practice. I didn't train. And race day came, and it was a catastrophe. One that scarred me enough that I'll never do it again. <laughs> it's, easily, it's easy to get discouraged. But Scripture, God's Word is full with these encouragements that, that teach us, that, that give us a, a plan and an outline. And I want to encourage you, listen... You've may, you've may have started this before and it fallen apart. Don't let that be the end. Go back and start again. Get a journal. Even if, you've filled a, even if you've written in the first pages of 20 journals, get another one. Start again. Practice. Use the Acts prayer method. Find a place where you're going to dive in and, and walk with God and, and praying to him, writing it out. If that's the way that you do it, find a place Get a plan. Who are you going to pray for? What are you going to pray for? And practice it. Because the promises of that practice is that our lives are built on a rock. And Jesus says that when we build our lives on that rock, when everything crashes around us, our house doesn't crash. It brings us to the second question. Not only are you praying, but second, what happens when you pray? And I'm hopeful that this is kind of just that other push, that, that one more just encouragement for us to understand and to really begin walking in this faithfulness and practice of prayer. And the first thing that I want to point out from this passage is that, that prayer is a discipline that restores. Prayer is a discipline that brings restoration. Jesus instructs us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. You read through this model prayer, it's striking how much others-focused and kingdom-focused Jesus' words are as he instructs us to pray. He does, he does give us that invitation to ask for our daily needs, but the large majority of this prayer is about God and his glory and his kingdom and others. So when we look at this passage and think, thinking about this, the kingdom of God, it's striking, but it shouldn't be because as we look in, in other places throughout the gospels, specifically Luke chapter four, verse 43, Jesus says this, after spending some time praying, he says, but he said, 
I most, must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because this is why I was sent. To declare the kingdom of God was the reason why Jesus was here, so it should not surprise us that when Jesus invites us and instructs us to pray, one of the very first things that he's going to tell us to pray is that God's kingdom would come. Because that's the reason he came. One author kind of puts these things together when he says, he, he connects Jesus and the kingdom when he says this, that Jesus was the one who inaugurates the kingdom. Not by the fanfare of a coronation, but by the birth of a child in a manger and a stable unbeknownst to most people in the town. He ushers in the kingdom of God. Not only does he usher it in, but he declares the kingdom in his preaching. He travels from town to town, preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. He not only declares it, but he demonstrates it in his interactions with individuals. When he heals people, when he, when he calms the storms, what he's displaying in those moments is that the kingdom of God is at hand. Every interaction that he has throughout the, Old Test the New Testament as you read the Gospels, is Jesus displaying what the kingdom of God is like, where the blind can see, the deaf can hear, the lame can walk, the dead are raised to life. That's the kingdom of God, and he demonstrates it as he walks on earth in his years in ministry. He deployed the kingdom of God as he sends those who are his followers to themselves declare and demonstrate it in the places that they would go and praise the Lord that they did because we're here today as a response to that. He transformed the kingdom. Meaning this, that, that the Jews in that day, in Jesus' time, would believe that the Messiah would come and he would come in victory. And that victory would be a geopolitical victory where, where this space and this time that the Israelites would rise over other nations. But Jesus transforms that and says the mission is not this space and this time, but it's redemption of, the, of people, God's people from their sin, restoration of new life and relationship with him, and that it wasn't just for a space, a small strip of land in, middle, in the Middle East, but it was for the whole globe. He flips the mission on its head. The kingdom is transformed. He purchased it. He purchased the kingdom by his blood shed on the cross. He himself becomes the ransom that restores God's creation to the creator. And Jesus promises that he will return one day to eternally establish that kingdom that he began and ushered in when he walked on earth. He says, I've gone to prepare a place for you, but I'll come back to bring you to that place with me. The place where everything is the way that God desires it to be. And what prayer does is the prayer is a practice. It turns our eyes to our king and his kingdom. It takes our eyes off of our small, insignificant, claustrophobic little kingdoms all of our individual little kingdoms and it turns our eyes to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and his kingdom that has no end is what it says. So what Jesus came to do is rescue us from our kingdoms. Paul writes it in 2 Corinthians 5.15. He says, but he died, meaning Jesus, for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. Christ's instruction and invitation is for us to, is to join in in praying for his kingdom to come. 
to turn our eyes from these little small spheres of influence that we have and say, God, your kingdom be made right here, not my kingdom. On my best day, I can't make this restored to the way that you want it to be. You have your way here in my home, in my office, with my kids, with my wife, with my neighbor, with this addiction, whatever it is, God, would you, your kingdom come? Would you reign in sovereignty and glory and majesty? God's kingdom is his reign, his authority, his lordship, and his sovereignty. It's the next line that you can fill out there just as a reminder, give you a couple of definitions of God's kingdom that I find right on and really, really encouraging. God's kingdom is God's people and God's place under God's rule. That the kingdom of God is life with God. Under his rule and reign, where God gets done what he wants done. The kingdom of God is where the reign and the rule of God is willingly obeyed, gloriously displayed, and happily enjoyed among his people. Doesn't that sound exciting? Don't you realize that all of us inside of us have this desire to be in that place? Because we, every one of us were stamped with the image of our king. But sin has broken it, has marred it, and has separated us from it. And, and every one of us long to be in that place where God is getting done what God wants to be done. Where all things have been set right. Because we feel it. Right? When we say, God, your kingdom come, it's a confession it's a confession that things are not right in our world. We sense it when we look at our relationships, when we have those arguments with our spouse. You're like, this is not how it's supposed to be. When our kids rebel against us, that's not the way that it's supposed to be. When you have arguments or you struggle with your boss or your coworkers, when your body begins to break down because of age or sickness, you feel that kingdom is not here right now. We feel it when we watch the news and we see wars and destruction, whether natural or otherwise. When we see those, those dis, the horrible, dis, excuse me, the horrible distortions of, of God's design that our culture celebrates and we say, God, let your kingdom come because it is not the way that it should be. Even if we don't recognize it, that's what's happening in our hearts. We desire his kingdom to come. And so it's a petition, it's a begging God to have his rule and his way in our moment, in this very second in our lives, in this season, whether it's because of a struggle in your relationships or a rebellious child or your body breaking down, any of those things that we could list, that God, would you have your way in this moment because I know that this is not the way you designed it to be. And it's a declaration it's a declaration that God is God and we are not. Your kingdom come. God, I step aside because my kingdom is not going to make it. I've given everything that I've got. I've got all of this energy going to it, but my kingdom is never going to set right. It's never going to make it happen. God, would you have your way? Let me step aside. The practice of prayer moves us aside and says, God, your kingdom come with my kids and with my wife and with my job and my finances. The list goes on and on. Your kingdom come. 
It's a confession. It's a petition. It's a declaration. And when we declare it, it puts us in this willing submission saying, God, use me to make that happen. Because not only does it happen in our lives, but what, what it looks like for God's kingdom to come is that, that people would willingly obey God's rule and his reign, his, his desires, what his word and his will is, we would obey that. That would, there would be justice. Those who are oppressed would find hope. Those who are, who are marginalized and hurting would find protection. And for some of us, not only are we asking God to have his way in our lives, but there are people who are praying that same thing and God's going to use us to be the fulfillment of that prayer. That those are those who are hurting today. They're saying they're in a circumstance of, of, of pain where they're being overlooked. And they're saying, God, would your kingdom come? And God's going to use you as you submit to him to be a part of that kingdom coming in their lives. As we protect those who are hurting. As we feed those who are hungry. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. As it comes to bear in our own lives. And the kingdom of God not, not only is a practice that restores or a discipline that restores. It's a practice that transforms. It transforms our will. It says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me clarify this statement because I don't want you to think that this discipline is what transforms. It's, us, it's what happens when we practice the discipline of prayer. That when we put ourselves in front of God, God is able to transform us. Listen, Foster uh, again says this, that prayer, to pray is to change. That prayer is the central avenue that God uses to transform us. That he aligns our will with his will when we submit to him in prayer. The practice of prayer transforms us by aligning our will to God's will. And we need that because we, we don't see things right what does Isaiah say? And the prophet Isaiah says, his ways are not my ways. My thoughts are not his thoughts. Paul says in the Romans, to the Romans and, and by extension that us, that how, oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments. But when we pray, we begin to align our lives with his judgments, with his will. And that happens for us that happens for us is deeper relationship, that greater alignment with God comes when we have deeper relationship with God. One of my favorite passages of scripture is this passage from Habakkuk. Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18, he says, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though there are olives, excuse me, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen or cattle in the stall, listen to verse 18, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in, the God my, in God my Savior. How can Habakkuk say that when everything else falls apart, I'm still going to celebrate God and his will? Because he knows God. Because he knows that God is faithful, even though everything around him seems to be falling apart, God has not left the throne. And you and I are never going to find more joy and more peace and more hope and more satisfaction than when our will is aligned with God's will and his word. I promise that as we struggle I'm in my own life, and I'm sure that you have testimonies, when you've tried to do it your way, there's only hurt and pain at the end of that. But God promises us when we walk with him, when we align our will with his will through prayer, that there's joy and there's peace and there's satisfaction that knows no end. 
practice of prayer is a practice that transforms our will. And it happens when we're still and we listen. It happens when, we sti- when we're still and we listen. One author writes this, that a man first thought that prayer was about talking and then he became more and more quiet until at the end he realized that prayer was much more about listening. Richard Foster uses the illustration that, that even in this room as we've sat here, there's thousands of radio waves and TV signals that have passed through. But we haven't picked up on any of them because we're not tuned in. We're not able to. Like, I can't channel a TV station right now. That would be weird. But when we sit and we're still, when we stop talking and we listen, we can begin to tune in to God's heart. That's when we understand what his kingdom is and what his will is. We can submit to it. All of us want that moment that it's still, right? We're all busy. Every one of us, it's the national, it's, it's, it's the American anthem. Busy, I'm busy, I'm busy. I can tell you that next Saturday morning, I want to be still in my recliner at 8 o'clock in the morning as college day game day comes on. And I want to be still all day long. But that's not the kind of stillness that's going to, that's going to restore our hearts. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 37, verse 7. It says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Don't fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Listen, prayer is not a happy accident. We don't just haphazardly throw up words. Prayer is a discipline. It's learned and it's practiced. It brings restoration as the kingdom of God comes to bear in our lives. And it transforms our will and aligns it with his. And that happens when we're still before him. So for just a minute, I'm gonna, uh, Jen's going to come and we're going to sing a song. But before we do that, we're going to practice this. We're going to take a little bit of time. I'm not going to tell you how long it is because I'm hopeful that you get a little bit uncomfortable in the silence. But we're just going to pause. Really, the only sound you're going to hear is the air conditioner. And, and, and I just want you to push through in the silence. To say, God, your kingdom come and your will be done. And I hope that we get a little uncomfortable, but I hope it's the beginning of us practicing some moments where we just say, God, I'm going to sit with you and stop talking because my words are not nearly as important as yours. And then we'll sing this song that just can be our prayer as we close this morning. And I'll come up and give us a little bit of a a couple of announcements. So let's just sit in silence for just a couple of minutes.
thank you for allowing us to just sit and be still in your presence, Lord. Thank you for whispering your truth to us, that we are yours, that we are loved, that we are a child of the King. God, that you have a plan and purpose for our life. God, we want to praise you and give you glory with everything we do. Thank you for letting us sit at your feet and worship you today, God, and celebrate everything you are and everything that you've done and are doing in our lives. Jesus, we love you. We're going to continue to worship right now. If you want to stand or kneel, whatever posture makes you feel ready to celebrate God, I ask you to do that right now. So stand with me if you want to. And let's continue to worship this morning and lean in to the Father. Lean into his voice today. Let's sing to him. hopeful that 
you don't want to leave the moment. I'm hopeful that you have lots of things this afternoon that you have to do and you don't want to leave this moment. Because as you said in silence, it wasn't God pointing at all your faults, but it was the God of the prodigal son who, who met you and said, I've been waiting so long just to have your ear to tell you how much I love you, how much I want you to come to me and listen to me. We have to go, but the stillness of the moment doesn't have to leave where you are. I want to encourage you. Maybe, the, maybe this moment was just a, a taste that you say, I've got to get back to that. Then do that. Get back to it. Whatever that looks like, make some time this afternoon or tomorrow morning, whatever it looks like, get back to it. Because God's still got business to do. He's a loving God who wants to meet you right where you are.